Okay, it's uh, good to see so many of you here today, and it's wonderful as we begin the new year looking at God's Word. So let's uh, bow our heads in prayer. Dear Father, as we begin the new year, we pray that uh, the one constant will always be our devotion to you, our faith in Jesus, and our trust in your grace. And we pray that as we open your Word today, that uh, you will truly speak to us, and that we will examine it, and we will be nourished and truly built up in Christ. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, uh, 2013 has come to an end, and 2014 is upon us. And I guess if you read the newspapers everywhere, if you've been following TV, the news, it's filled with programs uh, looking back at the previous year and looking forward to 2014. And as you sort of look at the newspaper programs, you, know, you, you, you watch TV, you can't help but feel that life is changing really quickly. Uh, it seems to be moving faster and faster and faster. Uh, global weather is changing. Right? It's snowing in the Middle East. There's freak weather in America. You know, there's forest fires seemingly popping out everywhere. Uh, global populations are changing. Uh, global politics is changing. Uh, the employment market is changing. There are new jobs being formed, old jobs going away. There's MRTs coming up. There's new roads being built. Every day, the world seems to be changing faster and faster. And I remember reading an article last year where it said that uh, pastors who do not, are not willing to embrace change uh, burn out quicker. So that's why I bought a smartphone, right? <laughs> now at the same time, uh, as fast as things are changing, uh, some things have to stay the same. Some things have to be constant. And I think that there are two things that the Bible really draws our attention which always remain constant no matter what age we live in. And I think the two things are human depravity and God's grace. Human depravity and God's grace. Now what, I mean, what do we mean by human depravity? Uh, human depravity is uh, the biblical concept where all of us are filled with sin and we are unable to save ourselves because we cannot meet God's holy standard. It's, uh, it's really surprising because when I walked to church this morning, I saw a sign on a car just outside which said, going to heaven, just do good. Uh, but that doesn't work according to the Bible because we are not good people. Uh, I remember reading about an interview about a pornographic star who said that uh, he wasn't a bad person because he was not a murderer or a serial killer. Now, I think that we generally think that we are good people when we compare ourselves to other people. I mean, obviously, I hope that no one here is a serial killer. I hope that no one's a rapist or a murderer or a con man or a crook or a robber or a thief. But all of us can compare ourselves to someone else who's in this world who is worse than us. And therefore, that makes us a good person. But the Bible says very clearly that on God's standards, we hang our heads in shame. Because based on God's standards, we are not good, but we are very bad indeed. Because God is a God who knows everything, sees everything, and hears everything. He is omniscient, all-knowing, and all-seeing. And on top of that, with God, a thought is as bad as an act. A desire as an evil, as a deed, to convert is as bad as to commit. So Jesus said in Matthew chapter, 25, uh, Matthew chapter 5 up here, okay, Jesus said to his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount, 
You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So with God who sees everything, God who knows everything, God who hears everything, God who knows our intimate thoughts and our desires and our lusts and our cravings and our tempers and our jealousies, there is no running away. We are all sinful before Him. And that is what is meant by human depravity. It doesn't matter how our, our phones change, it doesn't matter how our worlds change, we are, in basic human nature, unchanging. We are sinners before God. And that's why in Romans chapter 3, God condemned the world. He said, because of our human depravity, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. See, that's a, the one constant in the whole of history, which is human depravity. And I was going to do this experiment today. I don't know whether I have the guts to do it, but I was listening to some people preach, and they always ask the congregation to repeat after them what they say, but it feels kind of awkward, right? But you can, you can say human depravity after me if you want. So human depravity, right? Okay. But the second constant is God's grace. Okay, God's grace. Because of human depravity, because we are unable to save ourselves, the second constant is that it requires the absolute necessity of God directly saving us. Because we cannot save ourselves, God needs to directly intervene to save us because we cannot save ourselves. And why does God save us? Not because we are good people, not because we deserve it, not because we are lovable people, but because of God's grace. God's mercy, God's forgiveness towards us. See, that's the second constant. It doesn't matter when we live in, what age we live in, what culture we live in, what society we live in, God still needs to save us because of His grace. In Ephesians chapter 2, it says, All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature, and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Now what powerful words these are. We could preach a whole sermon on them, but, but look at how God loves us. While we were objects of His wrath, it says. While we were dead in transgressions, it says. While we were following our sinful nature, following His desires and thoughts, God saved us. Not because we deserve it, but because of His grace and mercy and love towards us. Now this is something that we really have to keep repeating to ourselves. Because the great temptation for us is that we always think that we are good people who deserve God's grace. Uh, I grew up studying in a mission, Christian mission school in Singapore for many years. And somehow it was never really, or maybe I wasn't listening very well, I was looking out the window all the time. But I never understood that it was because of God's grace that I was saved. I always thought it was because I was a good person, because I lived a good life, because I came from a family. That, that, that went to church. Therefore, that God loved me. But it says here very clearly, 
that God saves us, not because we deserve it, but because of His grace. I remember when I was studying in Australia, if you notice that a lot of the churches in Australia, I don't know what it's like in England, but they have these big signboards at the front which usually have the times of the service. So, you know, like it might be St. Albion's Church, you know, we have services at 9.30, 11.30. But many churches also have these big signboards and they put little messages there. And in the newspaper, which is very rare, they, they rarely publish things about churches, there is, a, there is a church on one of the main roads of Sydney called Broadway. And across from this church is a pub. And the pub, if you go to Australia, also have big signboards which tell you what time the happy hour is and everything. Right? So the pub owner and the church pastor knew each other and they used to put signs communicating to each other. And the pub had a sign saying, this pub is for drinkers. So the pastor put a sign on his church and on the signboard said, this church is for sinners. And that's true, isn't it? Because ultimately, the church is made up of people who are sinners saved by grace. Uh, they're not people who are saved because they deserve it more or because somehow they're more lovable to God. No, it's because of the grace of God. Now, that is the reality of human depravity and that is the reality of God's grace. Now, a few weeks ago, I was preaching at a youth camp for another church and I realized young people have a great intolerance for hypocrisy, they have a great intolerance for insincerity, a great intolerance for phoniness, right? I won't use the other, the other word for it. It's not appropriate from the pulpit. But God's grace is not phony, neither is it insincere. Because God's grace was shown when He sent His very own Son to go to the cross to die for us. On the cross, He took all our jealousies, our hates, the thoughts that we have in our minds and the desires in our hearts, but also our actions. So therefore, as we look back at 2013 and we look forward to 2014, Faced with those two constants, human depravity and God's grace, how do we measure whether last year was a success for us personally and as a church? How do we measure whether going forward in 2014, uh, what, what, what our aim should be? Well, if there is human depravity and there's God's grace in Jesus, then how we measure our success is how our relationship with Jesus Christ is. Isn't it? If there is human depravity and God's grace shown in Jesus, then our success last year and our success this year is based on what our relationship with Jesus Christ is. Uh, last year might have been a good year for you. You may have been promoted. You may have good marks in your exams. You got married, had children. But in light of those two constants, was last year a successful year for you? How was your relationship with Jesus? Did you, did you grow in your relationship with Jesus, in your faith with Jesus? Uh, if you look at the title of the sermon, uh, I'm, I sort of made up this word, it's called stickability in Christ. Uh, I realized when I was studying in Australia, they have this very quirky attitude, like uh, they like putting Y's at the end of everything. So people don't call me Andrew in Australia, they call me Ongi. Right? Uh, they, and they like putting, turning uh, nouns into verbs. So they, 
they always put this ability behind everything. So stickability was one word that they always used. So how is our stickability with Jesus Christ? Are we sticking with Jesus through thick and thin? Now, when you stick with Jesus, uh, really, I think the Bible says that uh, it requires two things. It requires us to stick with Jesus in our thinking, and it requires us to stick with Jesus in our living. If we looked at those two passages we, uh, we read today, 1 Timothy 4 and Revelation chapter 2, it's all about sticking with Jesus in your thinking and sticking with Jesus in your living. So, as individuals, 1 Timothy chapter 4, did you stick with Jesus in your thinking and did you stick with Jesus in your living? Paul tells Timothy, to be diligent in these matters, to give himself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely, persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. You see, notice that. He's not just to watch his life, but his doctrine. He's meant to, to watch his thinking as well as his living. Right? You can't separate the two. You can't live differently than you think and you can't think differently than you, than you live. They're all interconnected. So life and doctrine flow together. Now, it's not an easy thing to do. Uh, we think it's easy, but it's not. It's something which we must allow the Holy Spirit to shape within us. But I think that every year, it's always good to... Uh, I mean, I, I read of some of my pastor friends and they go for retreats. And when they go for retreats, they... They look back at uh, their life uh, for the previous year from a spiritual perspective. So when you look back in your life from a spiritual perspective, when you look back and you look forward again, are you sticking with Jesus in your thinking or your living and your living? Are there cracks forming your relationship with Jesus? I mean, we have to examine each of ourselves personally. It's not up to other people to come and tell us. We, we, we know ourselves the best. So I was thinking for myself in terms of thinking. I remember last year, I used to read the newspaper a lot. And one thing I noticed about uh, the newspaper here, especially on Sundays, is it always tells you to save more money, especially about retirement, right? So maybe because I'm getting older that I notice these things more. But as I was reading the newspaper, I keep thinking, maybe I need to save more money for my retirement. And the temptation is, instead of, supporting my missionary friend who I've supported for years and years and years, I'm tempted to, to take that money instead and save it for myself. See, my, my thinking is not being shaped by Jesus anymore, but by the straight times. Uh, you know, instead of sticking with Jesus in terms of what my thinking should be, I'm starting to think more and more like what the world is telling me to think. Uh, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6 very clearly, Do not worry saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. But instead of listening to Jesus, what I find myself doing? Worrying, worrying, worrying. Worrying as I read the Straits Times about, oh, gee, the newspaper says I need 1.5 million to have a comfortable retirement. And I'm trying to figure out, how do I get 1.5 million to retire, right? And I'm thinking, well, maybe I shouldn't give to my missionary friend. And, you know, after all, 
he may have other rich friends giving him stuff. Why does he need my money? And that's the temptation. Instead of sticking with Jesus in my thinking, I start trusting and looking elsewhere in my thinking. There was an interesting book that I've been reading in preparation for uh, the topical sermons this year. It's called Respectable Sins. <coughs> and here in this uh, book, <coughs> he quotes this uh, psychiatrist. He says, um, Carl Menninger, the very word sin, uh, which seems to have disappeared, was once a proud word. It was once a strong word, an ominous and serious word, but the word went away. It has almost disappeared, the word along with the, the notion. Why? Doesn't anyone sin anymore? Doesn't anyone believe in sin? So it's not just uh, in terms of thinking uh, about uh, my giving, but I realize that there's a great temptation to not think about sin the same way that God does, but instead see sin the way that the world does. When we start thinking of sin the way the world does, what does the world regard as sin? What is sin to the world? What are the sins that the world regards as sinful? Maybe if you murder someone, it's seen as a sin. Maybe if you rape someone, it's a sin. In fact, nowadays you notice even if you commit adultery, it's not seen as a sin so much anymore. People think, well, it, you know, it was just an affair. Uh, you know, affair sounds so much better than adultery or sin. But the Bible actually views sin very differently. Uh, it sees something like jealousy as a sin. It sees something as anger as a sin. It sees pride as a sin. I mean, the world never sees pride as a sin. The world sees gossip as a sin. It sees judgmentalism as a sin. It sees unthankfulness to God as a sin. But do you see these things as a sin? Do you, do you have jealousy in your life or anger in your life or pride in your life or gossip in your life? or Are you unthankful to God or are you a judgmental person? Well, if you're if you if you're willing to live with these emotions and be happy with them, it's because you're not sticking with Jesus and you're being shaped by the world. We will never be perfect people. Uh, it says very clearly in that 1 Timothy 4 pro, uh, passage, Paul tells Timothy to make progress in his life. So in your life, in your thinking of Jesus, are you making progress? When you look back in 2013, did you make progress in your walk with Jesus Christ? That is the measure of your success. Now what is true for us as individuals is true for us as a church as well. In, uh, in Revelation chapter 2, <coughs> I'm only going to look at uh, one church. We went through this about four years ago, I think, or three years ago. And Jesus tells the church in Pergamum <coughs> that um, in verse 14, he has a few things against this church. He says, you have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual morality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, 
Otherwise, I will soon come to you and fight against you with the sword of my mouth. Two things you notice. They tolerate wrong teaching, which leads to wrong living. And it's not just the individuals, but the whole church will be held accountable before God. Isn't that what it says there in verse 16? Jesus says he will come and fight against his own church because they tolerate wrong teaching and wrong living. And he says to them, they must repent. They must repent of the wrong thinking and wrong living. So as a church, we have a great responsibility too to look back on ourselves and we ask ourselves, how do we measure ourselves in 2013? Was it a success or a failure? Now, we don't measure success in terms of numbers. Uh, you know, this is not a club. We don't me- measure success based on finances, although thanks to God we, are, we have more finances. We don't, we don't measure ourselves based on the size of the building. But we must measure ourselves based on Jesus Christ. With those two concepts, human depravity and God's grace, what is the mission of the church? To help everyone and to help each one to stick with Jesus Christ. And that is how we measure our success. So are we sticking with Jesus Christ as a church? Are we holding on to His thinking and His living? Well, uh, looking back over the year, I, I think it's been a real privilege to be a pastor here at BTPC. I know that you guys have to put up with, uh, with me, you know, my idiosyncrasies, my quirks, my uh, mistakes. You've had to patiently pray through some of my shortcomings and failures and you've sacrificed to partner with me in the gospel. But, but honestly, I, I want to say that I'm very proud of all of you. Because I believe that as a church, we stick to what the Bible says in terms of living with Jesus Christ and thinking with Jesus Christ. Now, one area that I can think of <coughs> is how in the Bible it says that uh, God made man and woman and man and woman are equal in salvation and they're equally valuable before God in every way. At the same time, the Bible says that within marriage and within ministry, uh, men and women have different roles to play. And uh, that's what we believe in. Uh, in our marriage courses, in our uh, teaching, in our membership classes, we, 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 we say yeah, men and women are different in the Bible. That's the way God has made them. But this is not what the world believes. Yeah, this is not what the, the mood and the spirit of the age is. I was reading on the internet, you can look it up yourself, you can Google it, uh, that in Sweden today, uh, in education and in schools, uh, the teachers no longer call boys boys and girls girls. They call them, uh, some Swedish word called hen, which I don't know what that means, but everybody is a hen, boy or girl. And the libraries, uh, the children's books no longer have characters which are male or female. Right? Because they, they, they want to show that there is actually no difference between men and women. But that's not what the Bible says. And as Christians, we, we do not hold to what that says. We believe that men and women are different in roles, but equal before God. And last year, unfortunately, uh, we believe that, uh, uh, I guess, the, the constitution that we were asked to, to take uh, was, in effect, 
saying that men and women were interchangeable in the role. So we said, no, this is not what the Bible says, and we were willing to make a stand over it. And I think that's really important. Uh, I've had pastors of both English and Chinese churches come and tell me how lucky I am to serve in a church where I can serve with a good conscience. Because a good conscience before God is really important. A good conscience says that you are, you're, you're following what God says and sticking to Jesus to the best of your ability. See, unfortunately, I think in the spirit of the age, and it's going to get worse, and I'm telling you it's going to get worse, society wants the church to mirror itself. It wants the church to mirror what society thinks. Uh, and unfortunately, the church cannot be an image of the world. It must be an image of Jesus Christ. Because it is Jesus' church. It is not the world's church. So again, you can look it up in the internet. Um, if you look up here, okay, um, there's this woman from CNN called Rachel Held Evans. And she wrote an article saying why uh, millennials are leaving the church. I, I, see, to show you how out of touch I am, I don't even know what millennials are. So I have to get my son to look it up for me. Apparently millennials are people who are born in the 1980s. Okay? So if you don't know that too, well, now you know something new, who the millennials are. And she said that the millennials are leaving the church. Why? Because uh, the church is too political, too exclusive, old-fashioned, unconcerned with social justice, and hostile to lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people. And I think that there's some good points in what she's saying. Because the church shouldn't be too political. Uh, shouldn't be too exclusive. I mean, it's open to everybody. Well, we're not an exclusive club. Uh, we shouldn't be old-fashioned. We should be open to, you know, to, to, to different fashions, to new fashions. We, and we should be concerned for social justice. But I think that she's mistaken when she says that the church is hostile to lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender people. Okay, let's make this clear that the God is not hostile to gay people. He's not hostile to lesbian people. Uh, he loves gay people. He loves lesbian people. He loves transgender people. Jesus died for gay people. Jesus died for lesbian people. Jesus died for transgender people. But what the Bible is very clear about is that there's only one place for sex. And that is within the marriage between a man and a woman. Uh, if people have sex outside of marriage, that's sin. If people have marriage, even within marriage between a man and a man, and a woman and a woman, that's sin before God. And unfortunately, if we want to stick with Jesus, we have to say this is what the Bible says. And we cannot make the church a mirror of what society wants us to be. So, um, next slide. So this guy uh, who was uh, commenting on her, her, her article said, Some millennials, like many from generations before us, want the church to become a mirror, a reflection of our particular preferences, desires and dreams. But other millennials want a Christianity that shapes and changes our preferences, desires and dreams. When the countercultural message of Jesus is softened or tweaked, or the raging idols of this age, such as money, sex and power, are overlooked and ignored, the cost of Christianity disappears. See, ultimately as a church, we have to stick with Jesus no matter what. We want to welcome everybody. We want everybody to come in. But our success, our, the way we measure ourselves is how we stick with Jesus. 
And if we have to stick with Jesus, but make other people unhappy, then we must stick with Jesus. So, 2013 has come to an end, 2014 are here. But those two constants are still the same. Human depravity and God's grace. So how have you stuck with Jesus in your life over the previous year? And how will you stick with Jesus in the year to come? In conclusion, I was reading a novel uh, during my holiday and uh, it was a detective story. I like reading detective stories now. And uh, one of the characters, this guy, is a, is, he's a crime writer uh, based on the newspaper, so I think a lot of his characters are very real. He writes of a politician who was a lawyer before in America, a very rich, powerful man. And on his dead bed, uh, he was very bitter and angry. And he was talking to uh, someone who uh, had a relationship with him, and he confessed to this person that he was very unhappy with his life because in spite of all his riches, in spite of all his power and wealth, he felt that in his life he had been a coward. He had been a coward because he didn't stand up for what he believed in. And he was a puppet, he said. He was a puppet because he was played by other people. Now as I was reading that, uh, that story, it made me think back of my own life. Of how when I was 15, I think I was 16 years old, I was with a group of friends on an overseas trip. Uh, they were not a very good group of friends, and I wasn't a Christian then. And uh, I remember, uh, okay, this is my confession. Okay, I stole a Toblerone chocolate bar from a confectionery shop in order to impress them. But after that, when I left the shop, and I thought about it, I thought, you know, why did I do that? I was a coward because I allowed their peer pressure to make me do something in order to impress them. I was a puppet because I let them play me. And I think even today, uh, many, many years later as a Christian for many years, uh, the, the, the temptation to be a coward, the temptation to be played by other people and to be a puppet by other people is still there. Uh, the temptation to do what is convenient rather than to stand up and to stick with Jesus. The temptation to, to be a puppet and to please other people rather than to please Jesus Christ. So I hope that as we move forward to 2014, we will not be like that. We will stand for Jesus. We will stick with Jesus. Uh, even though it may cost us, it may hurt us, it may come at some price, but we will still stick with Jesus. And we will not be played by other people. We will not be puppets to other people. But we will stick with Jesus and benefit from God's grace. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, help us to recognize the reality of our human depravity, our sinfulness, our inability to save ourselves because of our human nature. Uh, the raging thoughts of lust, of uh, anger, of jealousy, of gossip, of hatred, of judgmentalism, of unthankfulness, which we keep fighting and fighting. And now with the Holy Spirit, we are gaining some measure of success over. But at the same time, dear Father, help us to see that we will never be perfect. But all the more we need your grace, your mercy, your forgiveness. And we know that that is found at the cross, at the cross where Jesus died for all our sins. And dear Father, we pray 
that for each and every one of us, we will always hold on to Jesus. We pray that as we look back at the year past, we will be honest with ourselves to see where we have slipped, where we have let go, where we are no longer thinking your thoughts or living your life. And dear Father, we pray that through the Holy Spirit, you will help us to draw closer to Jesus, to really stick with Him, to repent of any wrong thinking or wrong living that we are doing. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.